Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. We're jumping into great text. Great, great text tonight. Uh, the word perhaps is, it, it shows up in chapter 14, is one of my favorite moments in Scripture. Not my favorite. It, it does not trump the resurrection by any means. But it's one of those cool, try not to get too fired up when I, when I get talking about that word perhaps, chapter 14. We're going to be flying through 13, 14, and 15 way more than we can even possibly cover tonight. Just at the truckload of it. But I love to have a little question, kind of get us going, something fun. Uh, here's the question I got for you tonight that you can kind of discuss. Uh, again, keep it light, keep it fun, don't, don't get dark and serious on me. Um, here's what I want to know, alright? What's something as a kid you got in trouble for that you will never forget? Something you got in trouble for, like, I will never forget that. Wow. Got one? Go ahead and share that at your tables. Talk about that. Sometimes you know you did wrong, you got busted, you know you were wrong. You, maybe you tried to explain it away, but at the end of the day, you were dead wrong and you got busted. Okay, go. Alright, we'll jump back in. Hope you get some good stories. I, uh, I have to determine, like, how vulnerable or how almost, I'm not going to be, I'm not, I'm not going to be inappropriate by any means, but, like, which story I can share. I could go with the easy one, uh, or I go with the one that's like, oh, man, I bet you did get busted. Um, the one where I really got, like, bust as a kid, I've, I've done other things way worse, but I remember the one time when I really got busted as a kid, uh, <laughs> I had a couple of buddies, and I want to be careful, not that they would ever listen to this podcast, but they, they would know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, one of them was the, uh, the preacher's son here at CCO a long time ago. His name was Mitch. Great, great friend. One of my best friends growing up. And uh, <laughs> he had another kid named Steve. He and I would hang out all the time. We'd go fishing. And I don't know what got into us, but a lot of times our parents would get together on Sunday night. Remember we used to have like Sunday morning, Sunday night church, Wednesday night church, always a church. It was like that when I was a kid, and uh, Sunday night after church, went over to, you know, Jones's house to have ice cream, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Well, we're all three down at this pond, and we're just kind of fishing behind Mitch's house. I still remember this, because I got lit up, and uh, we're down there fishing, and we think no one can hear us, and we're just, I mean, I'd probably been a believer maybe two years tops and come to Christ, and our family was kind of getting involved in the church here more and more. And so our parents, I mean, it, this house has got to be, it's got to be like, as a kid, it felt forever away. I've not been back to that house since I've been an adult, but as a kid, it was like, it was like three or 400 yards away. I mean, if I were to go back, it's probably like 50 yards. But as a kid, carrying a tackle box and a fishing pole, it was forever away. I remember one night, we went down there, and we decided, Steve did something, I remember he cussed, and it was the funniest thing for some reason. I don't know if you can ever remember that with your kids. He said a cuss word, and we got so tickled over it and started laughing. And the next thing you know, it started turning into this torrent of the three of us combining all of these words, like totally just, I mean, cussing so bad. I mean, bad, bad, bad. Screaming across the pond and then laughing at what we made up. I mean, we're putting words that don't even go together, and we're like laying on the ground because... Mitch will call one out, then Steve will call one out, then I'll call one out. And we're just, I mean, we're just kids cussing like crazy. It's like, if you ever seen the movie Stand By Me, it's one of those moments around the pond. We're all spread out, screaming across this pond like, hey, yeah, just yelling things at each other. Next thing I know, what always happens, we heard the horn go off. 
and it's like, oh, it's time to get ice cream. We went up there. My mom was already in the front seat of the van. My dad just looked at me and goes, get in. And man, that was it. They heard everything. He was echoing off those ponds. He was carrying all the way up to the house. Oh, man. Woo, I got lit up. I got lit up. And uh, I knew I was guilty, man. I knew I was guilty. It was a, it was a bad deal. Bad deal. I tried to, at first, make the thing like, well, you know, it was, it was Stephen Mitch. It wasn't me. And I was a full-on lie, man, because I was cussing up a storm that night. I don't know if you've ever just been caught. I mean, flat-out caught. The, the, the safe one for me was... Before we were uh, Christians, I was probably, I don't know, second, third grade, something like that before we were started. I'd started going to church, uh, but my, my family wasn't. And I remember it was, uh, it was an Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday for us at that point was not go to church Sunday type thing. It was like just like any other day, except we got, you know, chocolate bunnies that we put in the refrigerator and, or in the freezer and save and find in July type thing. Um, you know, we'd, we'd get all the candy. And so I remember... My mom had always told me, we knew where she hid it, you know, back in this closet area. And she told us, you know, don't go in there, don't go back there. And uh, my brother's always got cool things. And so I went back in there and I snuck in. My brother's sitting back to go do reconnaissance because they were punks, man. They said, hey, Jason. It's like, oh, I'll go do it, you bet. So I scurry back there, get in the closet, look around. I'm like, this is awesome. It's like a mother load of gifts. I'm like, this is fantastic. There's like tackle boxes and fishing lures and it was just amazing, and there was a bunch of candy, but there were only, we had, I had two brothers, but there were only two tackle boxes. And so Easter morning, everybody gets up, and I, I don't know why, as a kid, my kids do this, you'll be in the restroom, but why do kids want to talk to parents when they're trying to use the restroom? I don't know. I realized I did this to my own mother. I'm like, why? Why did I do that to her? And so I'm sitting there, she's going to the restroom, I'm sitting outside the door, leaning against the bathroom door, and all I do at that point, I, my brother, Mark, was in, in my room, sharing a room with you that night. I don't know why. But all of a sudden, I go, hey, Mom. She goes, what? Leave me alone. I got a question. Mom, what? I go, do I get a tackle box like Mark and David today? She goes, are you kidding me? All Mark did is, he goes, shut up. And it's just done. We didn't get our, didn't get our Easter baskets that day. We had to wait till the next day. Bad day. My brothers hated me. I got beat for that one. But I don't know if you've ever been just caught. Uh, sometimes we get caught, and it's a little bit funny because I can look at myself as a fourth grader cussing down at the pond, and I, I'm old enough now I can laugh at that. Uh, I can look at myself as a second grader getting caught, you know. But there are other times you get caught, it's not it's not funny at all. Uh, it's painful, and those are the stories we're not going to share here tonight because they're painful. Um, but let's dive into uh, this text. This really begins the, the transition for Saul. Uh, Saul's about to get a proverbial backside kicking right now. It's a tough three chapters for Saul, and really, it won't get any better from here. And it really is tough. I, I saw something in a text today that I'd never thought of. Um, you guys remember we talked about Samuel basically getting like terminated from his job for the most part? Israelites say they want a king, and all that stuff come, comes up. There's going to be all this tension that unfolds between Samuel and Saul, where Samuel's got to go confront Saul, Samuel's got to challenge Saul. And I've tried to, in my mind, wonder what that was like for Samuel to do that. I can't even imagine the tension it creates where Saul's got a huge respect at some level for Samuel because he's not the one that booted him out of a job. But at the same time, he's also the guy that took his job. You know, he's the one. Grant, he's not a judge like Samuel was, you know, but now he's a king. And I wonder what that tension's like, that now you've been relieved of your proverbial duties for the most part as Samuel, you, you've still got a role you're playing in Israel. No doubt he's going to play one right here. But I just wonder, what's that like? 
for Samuel. To have to be in that, that's a tight spot to be in. That now, you know, you get to call down the king of Israel, and you get to get in his grill and challenge him the things he's doing. So let's just get into this text. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, Saul knows that Samuel, I mean, Samuel knows that Saul shouldn't be in office at all. He knows he shouldn't even be there as king. And it should be, you know, there shouldn't be a king at this point. And so Samuel's looking at this going, man, there shouldn't be a king. And, you, and if there is one, you're not supposed to be it. And it, it's a tough, a tough spot. All right, let's go into this. First um, Samuel chapter 13, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna bypass what is really an intriguing argument and an intriguing part of the text. And I rarely do that with you guys. Because if I go through and unpack it all, we're, we're going to spend 45 minutes trying to explain what's going on here. Every so often in the text, the Septuagint, there's a thing called textual variance. This has got one right here. If you look at your Bible, some of your Bibles are going to show it. It says Saul was 30. How many of you guys have got like a little parenthetical thing around that? Okay? It's interesting. Um, and there's some research you can do on that. I've been directing some commentaries. It's not that I'm trying to dodge it. It's that we got a lot of other stuff I want to get to. But I want to, I want to point out, that is an interesting thing there in terms of textually what happens there. And you, I would encourage you to dive into that study on your own, look into it, like, okay, what is that? I want to research that. There's some good commentaries I can direct you to. But it is interesting. Um, so he reigned over Israel 40, 42 years. Uh, and some of the word 40 is not there. It just says two years. How many of you guys have got something different than 30 and 40? What do you have? I have he was 40 and he reigned over 32 years. Yeah, okay. What you've got is a textual variant there. And what they've done, the NIV's done a really good job at going, okay, the Septuagint's saying this, um, and something here, it wasn't listed. Because it, it originally would have said two years. Like, no, nah, that, that can't be right. It wasn't two years. So what they've done is they've gone back and they've looked at the life of Saul. Who else, would, when he died, what happened, different periods of his life, and said, no, 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 what it really should be is Saul was 30 years old when it happened, and, and, uh, and he reigned 42 years. So like I said, I don't want to just pass over that like it's not there. It's a, it's a really interesting thing. And you can go through and go historically see what the NIV did. I've looked at a ton of different texts. I think the NIV probably, probably nails it the best, in my opinion. So Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. So he and his boy are split up. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Uh, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Uh, and then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout Israel. Suddenly, let the Hebrews hear, so all Israel heard the news. Saul's attacked the Philistine outpost. Uh, now let Israel, uh, and now Israel's become a stench to the Philistines, uh, and the people are summoned to join Paul at Gilgal. Right, we're going to keep on going because this next, this next paragraph is really important to set up everything that's about to happen. So the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sands on the seashore. What right now, for some of you guys that studied uh, Judges with us, picture Gideon right now. This is Gideon. When you've got just, Gideon's like, this army is absolutely overwhelming. The Midianites are more, we can't even count them, there's so many. The Philistines are just thousands upon thousands of foot, foot soldiers here. You know, even the fact that they're enlisting 3,000 uh, chariots and 6,000 charioteers. You know, you get somebody driving, somebody shooting. I mean, this is an immense, immense, immense big army. That's coming against them. It says, When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard pressed, they hid in caves and in thickets among the rocks and in the pits and in the cisterns. I mean, these guys are hiding anywhere they can to avoid getting slaughtered. I mean, they are scared out of their ever loving minds. Um, and I do feel bad for Saul right now. I mean, his army is melting away in the face of opposition. And as a king, that's a tough place to be. Uh, you know, he's not been. 
you know, in this position for a super long time, and here he is early on, and his old army is now melting away. You might remember a few chapters earlier with Gibeah, he goes through and he's got a he's got a, a Jabesh, I mean, he's got a huge army that he amasses for that, and now he he's hurt he's hurt for soldiers. So Saul made a Gilgal, and all the troops were with him, quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. Alright, you gotta feel it. You gotta play this out like it's a movie. You gotta look at an opposing army coming in, thousands upon thousands upon thousands strong. Um, you'll find out later on in the text that not only are they outmanned, they're literally, literally outgunned. Um, the, the Philistines are the only ones in the region who have the ability to make weapons out of fire. And these guys, you're going to find out later on, there's only two guys in all of Israel that have a sword. I mean, they're literally fight, fighting with, with sticks, plowshares. They're fighting with, you know, slingshots. I mean, this is a tough place to be. And you're watching good night. Look at the chariots. Look at the, at the you know, at the spears. Look at the weaponry. And, I mean, they're scared. They are scared out of their mind at this army, and they're quaking with complete fear. It says, Saul's men begin to scatter. So here's where he goes wrong. And this really is one of two times we're going to find, also in chapter 15, where, man, Saul just completely screws this up. And he knows, God's told him, wait for Samuel, wait seven days for Samuel, wait seven days for Samuel. And he waits seven days. And the, the question is, how long do you wait on the seventh day? That's the issue. How long do you wait? You know, do you wait till 10 o'clock in the morning? Do you wait till noon? Your men, or you're literally, every time you turn around, there's some guy that was previously on your army, and you look, and he's taken off. He's, when you as a king have turned your back, five guys have just taken off running, you know, to go home. And you all, all of a sudden, you're sitting there going, good night, we need to know what to do. Is God going to be with us or not? Is God going to help us in this battle? You know, and you're waiting on Samuel, and this prophet is late. Where is a stupid prophet? You know, God, I waited the seven days. Where's the prophet? Where's the prophet? Come on, get here. And he's sitting there waiting. You know, they sit down, they have a conversation. A couple of guys get up, we're going to use the restroom, and they never come back. It's that type of feel. Like, good night. Everybody's leaving me. It says, uh, so he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And so offer up the burnt offering. And just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Okay, you got to understand. Samuel, Eli, those guys had permission to offer a burnt offering before God. They're a priest. They're set apart at that point. Uh, Samuel's you know, not actually a Levite, but, but God has given him the, the permission to do this. Saul is never, ever given permission as a king to do this. Ever. And he's told, you wait for Samuel. Samuel's the only one who can make a sacrifice to me. You wait for Samuel. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And I don't know where the prophet is. I don't know why God is delaying him or why Samuel's being delayed. But finally, he takes matters into his own hands. And man, I'm telling you, I have been there. Where I felt like I have waited on God to answer a prayer. I've waited on God to give me direction. And I'm like, forget this. We just got to move. We got to do something. We can't just sit here. And, uh, and my impulsive nature, hence my neck, hence my back, hence many other areas of my life, has a lot to do with the fact that I don't. Some of you guys may have the same issue. I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I'll figure this out. Let's just get it going. We can't just sit here. And you know, especially in American culture, that's kind of who we are. Uh, we're impatient. We're pragmatic. You know, we're pragmatists. We'll get this done. Let's just figure it out. And I'm looking. I'm Saul going. At that point, I'm probably one of the guys looking at Saul going, "Dude, everybody's leaving. Go make the sacrifice." 
I don't know if he's got people in his ear or what's happening. Maybe he thinks the Philistines have killed Samuel. I, I don't know where his mind is, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where his mind is. He's got clear instructions from God about what to do, and he doesn't do it. This is the downfall for Saul. Let's keep going a little bit more. Saul says, or Samuel says, what have you done? Um, you know, that phrase reminds me uh, of another phrase. And it's the phrase, where are you, in, in the book of Genesis. You remember that phrase when, when Adam sins, and God has that small little phrase, where are you? This phrase, what have you done? When Samuel walks up and he sees, are you kidding me, son? Are you kidding me? You've tried to unite king and priest, and God's not giving you permission? Do you not understand that you thought you could make a sacrifice to the Most High God, and you don't have permission? And that what have you done? I don't know if you've, like we talked about, have you ever been caught doing something you shouldn't do? This is, Saul, this is one of Saul's moments. I mean, this is Samuel. And I honestly think Samuel's got a look of fear in his eyes. It's not a parent condemning, what have you done, young man? No, I think Samuel's like, oh my God, literally, oh my God. Not, not meaning that in any way sacrilegious. Oh my God. Oh, oh no, my Lord. Is what he's saying to Samuel. What, what have you done? And I think Samuel realizes, we, we are in deep, deep trouble right now. Deep, deep trouble. Keeps on going. So Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering, you did not come at the set time, said seven days. Samuel shows up on the seventh day. And he says, the Philistines are something like Micmash. I thought, man, how many times has that bit me in the backside? The words I thought. Oh, man, if you've got anything, underline that, circle that, do something with that. Because that is, that is typically what gets us all in trouble, are those words, I thought. Well, I thought, well, I thought, and I know if with my kids, how many times I, I've had to say the, the phrase, you know, well, this time I didn't pay you to think. This is what I told you to do. It doesn't matter what you think or what you thought. What matters is what I told you. And if some of you guys are parents, you know that feeling. You've had that feeling with your kids. Where like, I didn't, I didn't tell you to think about it. I told you what to do. Well, I thought you want. No, it doesn't matter what you thought I wanted. I clearly articulated what it was I'd ask you to do. And that is this moment with Saul. It's like, I don't care what you think, Paul. Saul, sorry. It doesn't matter what you think. You were told with implicit detail what your role was. Um, that verse where it says you acted foolishly, um, it, it doesn't mean that he's an idiot. I, I want to talk about this. Open up your Bibles and look at Psalm 14, verse 1. Somebody read that at your table. Psalm 14, 1. Go ahead and read that at your tables. We'll talk about that. A lot of times we'll look at that text where it says a fool said in his heart there is no God. And we'll think that, well, that's, that really is like somebody who's, who's an atheist. You know, somebody who doesn't believe in God. I want to kind of flip that in your minds a little bit and apply it to Saul here. Sometimes I think, um, well, not sometimes, what I think in this case, when, when he says you, are, you acted foolishly, it really, in my mind, kind of mirrors what, what David's written in Psalm 14. Is that... No, it, it's not that you don't believe in God, Saul. You just thought you could outthink God. You, you're a fool. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. You know, you're the one who thought that you could take God's place, you could take God's commands, and you could execute them the way you wanted to. 
And man, that, that happens even to those of us who are, who are strong believers, where we know what God has told us to do. We know how it is we're supposed to live. We know exactly what it is. He's, he's, how He's called us to react to things or, or handle things. Then all of a sudden, you ever caught yourself doing the exact opposite? I mean, I'm like, good night. I know I'm not supposed to do this. And so before we just kind of go WWE and get on the top rope and, and do some big move, we land on Saul and, and power drive him into the mat. Let's back up for a second and kind of flip a mirror and look at ourselves and go, yeah, that's me sometimes. Where I know God's told me, don't do this. And I justify every reason under the sun as to why I'm going to do it. And dang, blast it, I just did it. You know, <sighs> granted, you're not, hopefully you're not going to your backyard and killing an animal and sacrificing it on a stone. But I think there are other times where we take, we take things that we know we're not supposed to do and we do them anyway. Um, and we're like, well, God, you know, you didn't understand. I, I had this issue. I had that issue. You know, you, God, you didn't understand. I was dealing with this. You know, we can take something as simple or as complex as tithing. And, well, you know, but God, you don't understand. This was going on in my life and this and this. And I chose not to do it for these reasons. And God's like, wait a second. I made it really clear that this is part of your Christian life. Or you can flip it into something like gossip. And you know you're not supposed to say it. And you know you're not supposed to do it. And the next thing you know, you're stumbling over your words the whole time. You're like, why is my mouth still moving? Why am I still talking? Can somebody please shut me up right now? And the words just keep coming. And that's where I say, man, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And that's where, in that moment, it's, it's not that you're an atheist. It's that you, you didn't follow God's truth. I didn't follow God's truth. We didn't follow God's truth. And we've said in our heart that our ideas are better than God's ideas. Man, that is, that's me. I love it to you. Sometimes I can be an absolute, the same that says it here, I act foolishly, just like Saul. Act foolishly. Now, you guys probably don't do that, but I do. It says, um, Sammy said, you've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, look at this. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Wait a second. Tell me why that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Exactly. We need to unpack that just a little bit. Because if you read it like, wait a second, would establish for all time, that means you've got a kingdom that's going to keep moving forward, but the Messiah doesn't come from you. It's going to be what we see later on, how it plays out. Some of you guys realize later on we're going to have two kingdoms within Israel. You're going to have Israel and Judah. Okay, Those will be two kingdoms. Which kingdom does David come from? The tribe of? Judah, okay? I think it's entirely true. For me, when I look at that text, I think it's entirely true that he would have said, you know what? I'm going to let your kingdom, even though you are not the path I had, it was going to come through David, God could have said, I'm going to allow a kingdom of Israel and a kingdom of Judah to be established. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to let, they're going to, they're going to live in harmony, they're going to live in unity, they're going to live right here. You wanted this, Israel's going to this way, I'm going to establish Judah over here. And you see that play out, that's the way God ends up orchestrating it through all kinds of crazy scenarios. And actually, the divided kingdom really comes through David and Solomon. It does end up happening. But I think there's possibilities that if Saul doesn't do this right now, Jonathan becomes king. I don't know if Mephibosheth does because of other issues. But you've got, you've got a whole outline here of, of Paul's future, of Saul's future. And he, he, he does what Esau does. He mortgages. He mortgages his entire future over, over a moment. Remember the story of Esau when he sells his whole birthright of the whole soup. And, and in this moment, this flash, this... And I don't know if you've ever had in... How many marriages have been wrecked over an impulse? Just, ah! What was I thinking? What was I thinking? Why did I do that? 
and, and trying to take that moment back, you know, or take those words back. You know, I, I know in, in my household, you know, here's, you know, <laughs> the way we have to operate it in my household with Janice and I is we will not have critical discussions. This has nothing to do with Samuel, but we're playing now. This is why I'm tired with jet lag. I told you to say things I shouldn't say. My wife will listen to this and go, why were you talking about that? We got a rule in our house, uh, and it is, uh, I say rules, I, got, I lord over this, but it's just, it's a rule I've got. It's how I have to do things. Uh, we will not, it used to be 10 o'clock. But the older I get, now it's 9 o'clock. Because uh, I can go to bed at 8.30. Uh, we will not have critical discussion in our home, uh, be it about finances, be it about, you know, you know if, if there's a point of disagreement after 9 p.m., we will not do it. We just won't. And my wife it stays up way later than I do, and she'll want to start a discussion about 9.30 or 10. And I'm like, at that point... I don't know if any of the husbands in this room are like me. I will say about anything just to be done with the conversation so I can go to bed. And sometimes to say anything is like, dang, I shouldn't have said that. Because now that's going to open up another hour worth of conversation. Like, ah, oh, if I could just have those words back right now. Why did I say that? And it's like, or and then the more tired I get, the more stupid I get. And the more stupid I get, then I say something I don't even mean. And then I retract and go, I don't even mean what I'm saying right now. I'm just delirious. I just want out Oh, help me, Jesus. In this moment, I think Paul, Saul, I keep wondering Paul, Saul has one of those impetuous moments where he lets his actions take the best of him. And, and it bites him. It, it ruins it for him. It ruins it for Jonathan. It ruins it. It just blows it. And, and you know, that's tough. That's tough. It's the same stuff that today can you know, ruin employment. You know, when somebody just fires off at a boss because they're tired, or because they're cranky, or it's just, it's just that time, you know, late in the day, everybody's tired, and all of a sudden you run your mouth over an issue, and you're like, man, we almost made it, it's like 4.45, like, seriously, you had 15 minutes, we were done here today, just shut up, you know, and I'm looking at, at Saul going, dude, your army's already melting away, it's late on the seventh day, wait till the eighth day and take it up, I mean, Samuel comes late in the day, we can kind of pick up on that. That impetuous, I gotta get it done thing, or I gotta make it happen, or I'm just gonna say one last thing. And when you think of friendships wrecked over one last word, marriage is wrecked over an impetuous relationship or an impetuous last word, or finances wrecked over an impulse, we're gonna do this, we can handle it. It's the same thing we all struggle with. Same thing, and Saul struggles with it here. Uh, and you're gonna see him struggle with it for the rest of the, the time that he rules. Alright, never that. It says, uh, um, verse. I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, you know, and, 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 and we didn't talk about how it impacts Jonathan. Uh, let's, turn, let's keep moving on. The rest of this chapter kind of unfold, unfolds, but I do want to hit uh, a couple of things at the, at the end of 14 that are interesting that we already alluded to. Um, so Saul and his son, uh, Jonathan, and the men with him were staying at Gibeah in Benjamin. Okay, Gibeah, Saul's hometown. Gibeah has become almost a pseudo-capital for Saul. Uh, it, it, it's not the official capital. You can look at places like Shiloh and other places, Ramah, but this really has become kind of his centralized power. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like if you're going to centralize power, you're probably going to go someplace familiar. You're going to centralize power someplace that you feel comfortable. You know, someplace where you get family and friends around you that will protect you. And so Gibeah, that's his hometown. That's kind of where he, where he centralized it. Um, <clears throat> so they're saying Gibeah, uh, the Philistines are camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went to the Philistine camp 
uh, in three detachments, one toward, toward Oprah. We can mention all the cities. It that part is important. We're not going to get into it. But verse 19, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel. Because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make, sh- make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, their mattocks, their axes, and sickle sharpened. I mean, every time these guys are working in the field, and they've got to sharpen an axe, they've got to sharpen a sickle, because they've got metal at this point, Every time they got to go down to the Philistines, stand in line, pay the Philistines money to get all their stuff sharpened. They don't have a blacksmith in Israel, not one. And that is a recipe. It, it becomes, it's a recipe for disaster. They can't even sharpen their own tools. And uh, they don't have anybody who's got, I don't know if it's an issue of technology, I don't understand what it is, but we know not one can be found. Um, maybe, the, maybe the Philistines wouldn't allow it, I don't know. Um, it says, uh, the price was two-thirds of shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks, a third of shekel for sharpening uh, forks and axes, and for repointing goads, which is what you kind of poke at an oxen with, stuff like that. Um, th- there's probably, you know, some greater principle I can make out of those prices, but I don't have anything. So we're going to move on. It says, so in that day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Jonathan and his son, only Saul and his son Jonathan had him. Only swords and all of so these guys are like, I mean, even though they're soldiers, they look like farmers going to battle. Imagine that. you got to go against an army with a goad. Well, we know what Samson was able to do with one. you got to go up. It wasn't Samson. Who was that? Uh, was it Gideon? It wasn't Gideon. I don't remember. In the book of Judges, one of them used a goad. They fight off people. Um, you can imagine. These guys are going up against a superior army with inferior weapons. And uh, it's threatening for them. All right, now we've got some fun. I'm going to get really excited here. Just a fair warning, it's coming. Because this chapter 14 is a great text. It's a lot of fun. It says, Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out uh, to the pass at Michmash. And one day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, I'm like, what armor? <laughs> like, you got a sword and maybe, like, a shield or something? Uh, this guy doesn't have a whole lot. Uh, and most likely, it's not a very sharp sword. Uh, because I doubt Saul, I doubt Jonathan is going to take that down to the Philistines to get sharpened. So it's probably not even a very great sword that he's got. You know, I'm sure Jonathan takes care of it, but I mean, <laughs> the Philistines are not going to sharpen his sword for him. So he goes on, he says, let's go to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. All right, how many chariots we got? 3,000. How many charioteers we got? 6,000. How many men do the Philistines have? Yeah. Innumerable. Okay, innumerable. How many men does Saul have? 602. Okay, him, is, and, you know, 600 men, him and his boy. We'll call it 602 is what he's got. Let, let's compare that real quick. Remember Gideon's story? When Gideon goes up against this massive army of Midianites, how many men does Gideon have? Remember, he's got to go through it. He's got to weed them all out. You just said it. Man, if God can destroy the Midianites with 300, he can definitely destroy the Philistines with 600. So before we feel too sorry for Saul, he's only got 600 men, don't forget the book of Judges and what God did. And Saul knows the story. It's public record. It's, you know, it's the lore of Israel. The story's been told. When they sat around at night, they're telling campfire stories. Like, dude, tell them what about Gideon again. Oh, Gideon and the lamps and they break them and the trumpets and how they all kill each other. That's awesome. And I wonder, sitting underneath this pomegranate tree where Saul's only got 600 men, 
Does anybody speak up to say, man, we can do this. Remember Gideon. I don't know. Does Saul even speak up? Does Saul remember it? I don't know. But I know this. He's sitting there at the pomegranate tree, hanging out, sulking with 600 guys, while his son acts in faith. Saul retreats in fear. Jonathan's going to move forward in faith. And that is the key phrase for this chapter. Saul retreats in fear. Jonathan moves forward in faith. And that's also all story, but I'll get to that later. It says, uh, um, Among him was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahiatub, son of Phanias, son of Eli, the Lord's priest of Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Okay, you guys have been in this text long enough. I'm reading a lot of names, but you know the story. That is the biggest who's who of losers. I mean, that is nothing to be be proud of. Read those names. Just gotta walk walk out. First of all, you know, you look at it, there's a hijah who's wearing an ephod, so he's taking on a priestly role. He is a son of Hophni dies, the son of Phanias. Oh, Phanias has, has kids. They both died. Phanias has kids. So I believe he's a son of Phanias. Okay? Um, we're being grandson. Son of grandson, I think. It says, among them is Ahijah, who's wearing an ephod. He's a son of Ichabod's brother. Anybody remember what Ichabod means? We said that. You guys talk about that? What's it mean? The glory is departed. What a terrible name for a kid. I'm like, yeah, my name is the glory departed. Yikes. It's just a rough name, man. Rough, rough name. Um, Johnny Cash thought a boy named Sue was tough. I'm telling you, to be in, in Israel called, my name's Glorious Departed. Um, you, you look at that, and then he says, you know, he's a son of Phinehas, and we know Phine- oh, there I found it right in the text. It was fine. Um, Phinehas is the guy that's the womanizer. He's the guy that, I mean, he's just a train wreck priest. Phinehas is terrible. And then Eli, he's a fat guy that's eating all the sacrifice that belong to God. I mean, this is not a stellar class of people he's got sitting around him. Like, it's the best he can get, and it's not good enough. It's just like, I'm looking at Saul right now, I'm like, wow, bud. Wow. Good luck with that. Like, you've already got, the only priest you've got is the one that God has already said, they're going to be completely removed as priests. <laughs> like, yeah, that's just a mess. But if you understand what the writer's doing, look at the writer. The writer's brilliant here. He's just kind of setting this story up. Like, watch this. We got Jonathan going off by himself against a whole detachment of Philistines. We get Saul and 600 guys sent to the pomegranate tree with a loser, you know, family priest that's already been discredited and disowned by God as a priest. This is the who's who of Israel right now. It's a mess. Just a straight up mess. Um, And I even wonder, like, does this guy even have permission to act as a priest? I don't know. That's the thing I'm wondering. I go, man, is is he, I mean, God's already said they're done. The house of Eli is done. They will get removed later on. And uh, do we have time for that? Uh... I don't know if we get time for that. Yeah, we got time for that. Okay, so we don't have time for that. We'll, we'll, we don't have that. Moving on, moving on, moving on. Saul's actually going to help remove that family, but that's that's later on for Samuel. I'll save that when we get there. Okay, moving on. Here we go. Um, let's get back in the text. On each side of the pass, they intended across the reach of listing outpost. One was called, was called Bozes and the other Sena. Let's do this for fun. You guys got smartphones at your table? Who's got a smartphone? Okay, pull your phone or pull out if you're logged on the internet. You got iPad, what do you got? Just for kicks, I did this last night, and I had never taken time to look at this, this terrain. And if you type in Bozes, or how do you pronounce that? Type that in, click on images, 
And I double checked that it doesn't pull up anything inappropriate last night. So I'll just go there right now. If it does, it did not last night when I did Google. So not on me. How many can see the image there? To pull up an image? I know we have smoking fast Wi Fi out here at CCO. You got it? Still trying to get there? No, I'm there. I've got a bunch of them. Okay. So they're all kind of the same, don't they? Click on one of those and look at that as we tell the story. Do you see a, 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 like a little valley going up and two pretty rocky crags on either side? Is that what you see? Okay. That way, I want you to, to imagine, be creative. I don't know. We got, you've got Philistines on both sides of those cliffs up above them. Okay? Jonathan is going to do what really looks like the worst tactical approach at warfare ever, but it's awesome. Okay? So who can you see him? Got the image there? Watch those. Kind of keep going back and forth as we unfold the story because I think it's a whole lot more fun when you, can, when you can watch that. So here we go. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. See the cliffs? Got them? This is cool. To have to sit there. Technology's just fun. We used to have to imagine and visualize it. Like Literally now we're like, we're looking at the pass that he walked through. It says, it says uh, one was called Bozes and, uh, oh, where was I? I thought that was interesting. Uh, Bozes means slippery. Uh, the other one, Sina, it means thorny. So slippery and thorny are the names of these two passes. You go ahead and name them in your own mind right now. You can pick which one is which because I honestly don't know. It says one cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other toward the south toward Giba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. I mean, he's just called out their manhood, but it's more than that. It, it's, it's covenant call. It's not just calling out, you know. It, but it is. It, he's calling out. These, these guys are even part of a covenant. Uh, I'm sure there are lots of ways he could have he said that. I love the fact that Jonathan just goes there. Um, he says, perhaps, there it is. There is that word. I love that. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Jonathan goes into this. I, in my mind, I love to create the scene and, and use my imagination. I think Jonathan's just sitting there, listening to his dad, listening to this dumb priest that didn't know what he's talking about. 600 guys, you know, 300,000 men, if you look at the other army they had earlier in 1 Samuel, 300,000 men have fled. They're hanging in tombs and crags and caves. They're hiding all over. He's having 600 guys, and Jonathan's just sitting there going, Gideon took it, why can't we? Come on, let's fight. I'm sick of sitting here listening to my dad carry on, whine on. I'm sick of these 600 men who, who don't have any willingness to fight. He looks at his armor bearer and he goes, you want to do it? And he's like, what? He goes, come on, follow me. He leaves without telling his dad. His armor like, what are you doing? He goes, let's go pick a fight. Love that. A picture of that moment in Braveheart. He's like, let's go pick a fight. He's like, all right, let's do it. So this armor bearer to me is, he doesn't have anything. All he's got is Jonathan's armor. So when the fight starts, what does he have? Jonathan's going to put everything on. He's like, ah, sorry, man. But he's going to fight anyway. He's like, ah, I'll go with you. Let's go. Let's go pick a fight. And he says, perhaps God will act on our behalf. He has no clue. Perhaps. Maybe God will bail us out. And maybe he won't. But I love the fortitude of Jonathan right now. He is acting so much more kingly than his dad. He's acting in faith while his dad acts in fear. Sometimes doing bold things on God's behalf is difficult. I get several regrets in my life spiritually. One of those happened in Vietnam. 
Um, I wasn't in Vietnam. I'm way too young. I'm, I went to Vietnam to Prayer Walk, Hanoi. Like, wow, it's a little young to be in Vietnam. Um, but I took a, took a group of people over there, and we just spent time praying in Vietnam and uh, asking for the gospel to break forth in that area, asking God to penetrate darkness, and uh, just felt called uh, to, to go there and pray. So we spent two weeks just walking the streets of Hanoi, Vietnam, and just asking for, for God's presence to penetrate darkness, and praying and praying. At one point, they, we got a chance to go up to this area uh, called Chaka, it's up by the border of China, and we made our way up there, and uh, one of the things we're going to get to do is Pioneer Bible Translator is a fantastic ministry uh, where they translate languages that don't have the Word of God and they put it in their language. And there was a group of people up there uh, that, uh, you know, we were going to go up there and we had heard that, man, the missionaries that were working in and around Hanoi, all undercover, all under threat of persecution, they said, we've, we've never been able to go up there. Well, somehow the guy that's kind of our tour guide, his dad's connected with the government in Hanoi, we say we'd like to go up there, and he's like, oh, no, I, I, you guys are, basically, says, you guys are white. I can't take you up there. Uh, he said, we, you know, they've not had any, any, any people like you up there since the war. He's like, there's no way. You're, you're not going to be able to go. He comes in the next day. He goes, hey, we can go. And so all the missionaries are like, are you kidding me? Like, you get to go up there? And so like, yeah. So it's me and a bunch of kids from Amarillo, Texas, a few of my adult leaders that are with us. 12 of us load up, or 10 of us, we load up in a, in a vehicle, we drive up. Hey, we get this video footage of this people group, get that to Pioneer Bravo translators, we get it all recorded on video, and, and, and it's just amazing. And I know there's a couple other people groups we'd love to go get on video so we can get to Pioneer so they can say, man, we want to look at the dialects, we want to make sure that we've got these other languages represented, we want to get them documented, uh, because they've not been up there. No one's been up in this region. And so, like, when we show up, like, people, kids, everyone's just flocking to us. They are blown away. Like, what are you doing here? And this guy, I don't know who he was. We had no real problems as long as we were with him. And people were pretty, really, very gracious and kind to us. Um, so we get up there, and, and one of my spiritual moments of regret is we come to this river crossing, and it is flooded. Like, I mean flooded. Water raging over the top of the bridge. Massive, massive amounts of rain. And I know that just up the road, there's two more tribes, and there's some more people that we would love to get on video. And we walked up, and we stood at the edge of the water, and the driver's like, well, we can't go across this. And I saw some people kind of walking across, and it looked really precarious and dangerous. You can't separate bridge, like literally. There's no rails on it, so it's just, it's kind of like a low water bridge down the Shoal Creek. You don't even know where the bridge is. You can tell the road kind of goes in, you can see where it goes out. Water's just flying across this thing. And the driver's like, no, we, we can't do this. And one of my spiritual regrets is this. I walked up to the edge of the water. And I looked across. And then I turned around. And I walked back and got on the van. And I regret that moment for everything in my life. Regret that moment. Not because I didn't walk across the bridge. Because I didn't even put my foot in the water to see what God might have done. I didn't even take a step. And I think about when God separated waters so the children of Israel could pass. Or when God stopped the flow of the Jordan for the children of Israel crossing the promised land. And I doubted. 
I didn't cross that bridge out of fear. I didn't cross that bridge out of danger. And I'm like, God, why? Why didn't I just say, God, if it be your will, maybe you'll act on my behalf. Or actually, your behalf. Perhaps he'll part the water. Maybe. Just maybe he'll part the water right now. But I didn't even put my foot in. If I could go back, there's others, but if I go back and retrieve one moment in my life, it's that moment. It's part of why <coughs> we're dealing with this whole thing about moving into India right now. Where the government's saying you're going to be arrested, you're going to be put in jail, all the things that will happen if we try to, to move in there. Everybody's like, man, it's, it's going to be too complicated, it's too hard, you know, the obstacles are going to be too big, you, know, you don't understand how hard it's going to be, and even within our own, our own organization, at times we're like, oh man, you know, we'll have, have people that are, that are leaders around us saying, that's a big undertaking to think you're going to move people into India. Wow, do you understand how hard that's going to be? How expensive that's going to be? And all I hear the Lord saying, okay. Okay. If you want to keep saying there's giants in the land, that's fine. If you want to keep saying there's giants in the land, that's fine. But you remember what happened last time? People complained about giants in the land. And I've just told myself, I will never allow myself to be in a place where I don't put my foot in the water again. Not going to do that. Not going to do it. You know, another time before that ever happened, I did, I was another time where I, I did something similar. India's a place of immense persecution from Hindu extremists. This is before the, the Vietnam thing. And I remember being in, uh, in India, and they took us to this Hindu temple. And we walked in there, and they bring all of these young monks out that are training. All these young monks in training. And all I've heard going into Hindu extremist persecution, Hindu extremist persecution, Hindu extremist persecution. We go to this Hindu temple, and we all kind of sat down. A whole group, like, I think it was like six uh, Americans were sitting there. And all of a sudden, this Indian guy, we got all these young guys just sitting there, kind of glaring at us, just staring at us. And uh, they all kind of take this posture where they all kind of sit down in a way that would make my hips pop out of joint. But they kind of sit in some pose that was just they were comfortable for them. They'll sit down like, ugh. And they'll just kind of look at me. And finally, the guy looks at me and he goes, he goes, preach Jesus to them. Tell them they're lost. Tell them about Jesus. He goes, share your testimony and, and tell them. And I gave the most milk toast representation of Jesus and how he, came to, he comes to save and to heal and how much he loves you. And it was just all true. Every bit it was true. But it was just the soft dabbling of, of, of what my faith is. It wasn't a powerful articulation of the, res, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and what that means. It was talking about the goodness of God and His kindness and His mercy and His love and all the platitudes of, of truth that just kind of rolled off sometimes when we soft-sell Jesus. And I think a lot of us in the room, we know the moments we've done that. We've soft-sold it instead of just flat-out telling it. And I started talking. All of a sudden, I watched this Indian guy look at me. And I just kind of keep, kind of keep talking. And all of a sudden, I hear this guy's tone start picking up. This guy was translating for me. I hear his inflection start picking up. I hear his intensity start picking up. And even though I'm saying stuff that's just kind of weak, and all of a sudden this guy stands up out of his chair, he's looking at these monks, he's crying out who Jesus is, and he preaches this powerful sermon. And in that moment, I realize I don't want to live a life of fear. I don't want to sit any pomegranate trees and talk about what if. I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit any pomegranate trees and wonder, could God... I can't go to be more like John and say, man, if all I've got is an unsharpened sword and an armor pair, would I be willing to raid and charge the very gates of hell? Because that's what it had to feel like for Jonathan. It had to feel like he was charging the gates of hell. But he went, 
and maybe God would bail him out, and maybe he wouldn't. I, I, I want to live life more like Jonathan and less like Saul. Does that make sense? Told you I get wound up. Love this. Love this text. Let's keep moving on. Because I'll keep I'll get into full on preaching mode, and that's not what we're here to do. Um, you go on, he says, uh, he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Wow. Wow. How true is that? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And I can tell you, going back to India, if there is a group of believers that understand that, it's the you know the Christians in India. You know, they are so outgunned, so outmanned, uh, I mean, so in, in over their heads, uh, and the gospel is spreading like wildfire. I mean, it is spreading like you can't even imagine how fast the gospel is growing in that area. And, and that's part, again, why we want to go, is I'm looking at it saying, I want to be a part of that story. You know, we hear the great stories of the gospel sweeping through places like China, or sweeping through Europe, or sweeping through the United States, or Sweeping through Latin America, as you've heard, someday they're going to tell the story of the gospel sweeping through India. I want to be a part of that. I was telling some of our staff, uh, you know, like, we, we can look at this a point of fear, or the way I like to look at it, is sometimes I look at this going, I picture this amazing pool that's God's kingdom. And people are going off the high dive, and they're doing back flips, front flips, and belly flops. There are people going off the slide, there are people splashing and playing. I don't want to stand on the edge of the water and be, and be timid. And go, and I think God's going, come play. Come on. You might lose your life. I might bail you out. You might drown, but it's going to be fun. Let's go. Either way, to live as Christ, to die is gain. And, and I love that mentality. Man, come play in this. And that's part of where my heart is with what we're talking about in India. It's like, I want to be a part of the story. I, the story's not about me. It's about him. It's about his kingdom. But I want to sit on the sidelines. And that's Saul. He's sitting at the pomegranate tree, sitting on the sidelines. And I'm going to let you extrapolate that for your own life. Let you extrapolate that for your own heart. But man, if you're sitting on the sidelines of God's kingdom, jump in the water. Call off the hideout. You get to live once on this planet until Jesus takes you home. You don't want to, do you really want to show up, you know, at whatever year that God takes you? Whether that's, you know, 35, 45, 55, 65, 75, 85, 95, and think, wow, I played it really safe. Really? I mean, really? Is that something worth looking back at your life and going, man, I'm glad spiritually I took it easy and I didn't ruffle any feathers. Screw that. Let's go for it. I mean, let's jump in the water and play it. Let's live a bold life. Maybe God will bail you out or maybe you'll be way over your head. But at least put you in a place of dependence. Put yourself out. Put yourself out there. It's like, I'm a little scared right now. I don't know if it's going to play out, but I feel like God's telling me to do this. Have this conversation. Do this. Go on the mission field or share Christ at my work, whatever it is. Maybe God will bail you out, but you can have that attitude. Jonathan didn't know. He just knew that God could save him, and he might, or he might not. But either way, you understand that didn't affect his boldness. And safety was not his primary concern. It's one of the issues we struggle with in my work with millennials, is that unfortunately, we've, we've, we've taught them to value safety at way too high of a margin. We've taught them the world is dangerous. You know, we've taught them, man, don't... I mean, good night. I live in the country, and I can't even let my kids go outside and ride their bikes without, what's going on? You know, it's just a whole different world where risk has been avoided. And I, I'm afraid of what that's going to mean for the kingdom of God in our own nation. You know, the kingdom of God, even among, among us in this room, is that we get in this place where we want to play it safe in our faith. I think God's saying, what? Do something bold. Take a risk. Because all the stories we tell, 
do we ever tell any great stories of people who played it safe? No. We always tell the stories of people who took risk. And even the stories of failure, we love them. All the great stories we tell, not just in, in faith, but in life, are stories of people who put themselves out there. And that's why we love Jonathan's story in here, not Saul's. Make sense? I'm back to preaching. Sorry. Moving on. Jonathan said, come, we'll cross over toward the men. I want you to look at how dumb the strategy is, but it's awesome. Come on, we're going to cross over toward the men, and we're going to let them see us. I'm sure the arm bear is like, what? Yeah, we're going to let them see us. Um, I'm not even going to get to 14 and 15 because I got too wound up with the other stuff. He says, we'll let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and we will not go up to them. Okay? I want you to follow this. If they say, wait there, we will come to you, we will stay where we are and we will not go up to them. Is there anything in that verse about retreat? Nope. Nope. Next one he says, but if they say, come up to us, look back at your cliffs real quick, we will climb, climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Either way, this dude's putting his life on the line. Either way, he's going in for a fight today. Either way, he's in it, man. He's in a thick. I love Jonathan. I wish we could have seen him. I wonder what kind of king he could have been. I wonder what kind of king. And, and one of these, I could go through and explain it textually. He's quite a bit older than David. He may be 20, 30 years older than David. You know, so I don't know how old Jonathan is in this text. He may be 20 years old, 30 years old. We don't know. But his attitude is, bring it. Let's go. His heart is for the Lord. His heart is for, for God's deliverance. And he says, if they want to kill me, they're going to kill me now. And Jonathan's like, we're going to do this on my terms, not theirs. Let's go. He says, if they tell us to come up, and it, <laughs> can you imagine? So both men showed themselves. My little textual variant is I like to go to a particular moment in the movie Braveheart and imagine that's how they show themselves. But I'm, I'm sure that's not how it happened. <laughs> if you've not seen Braveheart or watch it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It says, they showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us, we'll teach you a lesson. Can you imagine those two boys when that happened? They're like, oh, no, you didn't. No, you didn't just say that to us. Did you just say that to us? And I imagine there's got to be high fives. There are goose. There's goosebumps in my arms. I can't imagine what the goosebumps are like in their arms. Like, we just prayed this prayer. We told them. They told us, come up. Did they just say, come up? And all of a sudden, let's go. And they're just climbing. You know, they're climbing up. I don't know if they're climbing up the, the slippery rock or the thorny rock, but they're just climbing and climbing. Clawing at the saying, trying to climb. Like, don't fall. We're not going to fall. We know. Let's just get up there. I don't know how long it takes. The Philistines walk over, check on the edge. They hear yet? No, they stick a ways to go. They step back and watch. Like, come on, boys. We're coming. We're on our way. We'll be there in a minute. They just keep climbing. I wonder how long that climb takes. I wonder, like, are they even mapping out strategies? What are these two guys talking about as they climb up? Are they laughing all the way up? Are they, are they praising God? Like, I've told you before, if I get a DVR and I can go back and watch different moments, I want to watch this one play out. I want to listen to these two conversations between Jonathan and the armor bear as they're working their way out. I picture Jonathan all the way going, you ain't got no idea. You uncircumcised piece of junk, I want to kick your rear. I don't know if he's talking smack all the way up the hill, all the way up the cliff. Like, I'm coming. I'm on my way. I'm going to get there. It, it reminds me, of, have you guys ever watched Princess Bride? Where he climbs the cliff 
You thinking about that? And finally he gets to the top. He's completely exhausted. You know, hello, my name is Ingrid Matoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. I, I don't know what happens at this moment when they finally reach the top. If the Philistines are like, come on, we're going to help you. I don't know. I don't know why the Philistines just walk up. As soon as they get to the top, they just stab him with a goad. I mean, I think it's like 10, 12 feet long. Keep moving on. Um, it says, so both show themselves. Jonathan Armour climbed up. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. You can tell if you look at that image of the cliff why, you know, the writer's saying that. Uh, with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. And I imagine the armor bearer like, I don't have a sword. Jonathan's like, you will shortly. I'll kill the first one and grab his. He's like, sounds good to me. So he just, you know, Jonathan comes up, lops off somebody's head. Armor bearer's like, sweet, let's go to war. And now they're both just, they're both loaded, ready to fight. And they're just bodies hitting the ground left and right. Uh, it says that they killed uh, some 20 men in the area of about half an acre. Uh, you know, and you can kind of picture if you garden about what, that, that's a tight spot for 20 guys to be. Tight spot on the edge of a cliff, mind you. You know, they're, they're moving around fighting. you got 20 guys coming at you. Look at that image. Pretend what it looks like in your mind. What a great fight. Now think about this. There's the cliff. What do we know about the cliff? Where are the Philistines? They're on both sides of the cliff. He's only climbing one side. I also wonder what's going on behind him. Like, are these guys, like, taking seats? You know, he's like, which one are we going up? Which one do you want to fight on? They pick, for some reason, one side or the other. You've got Philistines on both. On one of these other guys, you know, they basically pulled out, like, you know, lawn chairs to watch the fight go down. You know, you got 20 guys up here, 20 guys up there. Like, dude, these two guys, they got one sword. They're going to fight 20 of them. You know, the other side, they pick their lawn chairs out, and like, all right, this is going to be good. Everybody's yelling smack talking each other. They're all cursing each other. They're all just yelling and screaming. I mean, it's a mess. All of a sudden, Jonathan gets to the top, and I wonder what the, I don't know if it's 20 guys, what the 20 guys on the other cliff were thinking. Like, oh my word. He just wiped them out. That dude just killed all 20 of them. You know, by that, they don't have time to run down the cliff and climb back up. I mean, this is, this is chaos when he just wipes these guys out, and then God sends an earthquake. Let's keep going. Then panic struck the whole army. And that's when I think God sends the earthquake. He says, start the whole army, those in the camp and the field, and those in the outposts and the raising, raiding party, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. So God just goes, and I don't know what happens if it's at the moment where he kills the last one, and then all of a sudden, you've got a Philistine outpost up here, you've got a detachment further up the valley that's probably watching this all go down, probably a lot of men watching this, and all of a sudden, they're watching bodies just falling off the edge of the cliff. They're watching their guys go down one after another. And all of a sudden, it all stops. Jonathan kills the last one, walks up the edge of the cliff. He looks across the other detachment. He looks down He looks down at the detachment. He looks across the outpost. And all of a sudden, I was a war cry. I don't know what happens. But panic. All of a sudden, the ground just goes. And I'm sure that rocks in that cliff are coming off. And the Philistines free out. Scares them to death because they realize it's not just Jonathan. In their mind, a God. In our mind, the God has just shook the ground. And he's shaken it. You know, other times when God would shake the ground, literally people would be swallowed up in it. I don't know what the hell happens, but this is a violent earthquake that scares them out of their ever-loving minds. Oh my word, take it to them. It says, Saul's lookouts, uh, not just the earthquake, I think it's different to also notice a panic was sent by God. Not just an earthquake. These guys have a full-on panic attack. Um, similar to what happened, remember Gideon's story? Remember Gideon's story where they all just start killing each other? 
So Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. And Saul said to the men who were with them, Muster the forces uh, and see who has, uh, has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. The, uh, Saul said to Hijah, Bring the ark of God. At that time it was with the Israelites. Uh, remember the last time the Israelites took the ark of God into battle? Not good things. Like Saul, you just don't learn. Hophni and Phinehas died. Eli died that day. So when Saul was talking to the priests in turmoil, the Philistine camp increased. The turmoil increased more and more. Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all of his men assembled and went to battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Wow. Awesome. And here's a couple of things here that I think are really interesting. Watch this. Verse 21. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines. You see that? You've got guys who have literally changed armies. You've got Hebrews so threatened that they've gone over to the enemy. The Hebrews, and most commentators believe these guys were literally basically become mercenaries willing to fight their own people just to stay alive. Um, There are some deep biblical principles for our own lives where we know people at one time have walked with the family of God, the community of God, and now when you see them now, it's like their lives have turned completely away from Him. It's as if they would rather serve evil than serve the living God. And, And what is it that draws them out? What is it that, that draws these men to realign with the living God? And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, I, want to, I want to point out two groups. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up to them, um, to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And I cannot imagine the tension. If you're the 600, and all of a sudden, here come these Israelites you know, and they're running toward you. And I don't know what's going on for Saul right now, when he sees, in my mind, it's it's not hundreds, it's thousands of Israelites that are now running. It doesn't give a number there, I don't think, does it? Um, But you see all of these Israelites who are treason, traitors, turn their backs. And and I think there's a a good lesson here in what Saul does. Come back to the army. Come on back. Come home. And I think there's a great lesson for us to learn, even here at times, when we see people come back. When we see people want to join back in the army, into the family of God, I think there's a great lesson there. Is to say, how can we utilize you for kingdom right now? You know, this is not the time to pick fights. It's not the time to, you know, to, you know, make issues. We we got a common enemy, and yep, maybe you served him for a while, but you don't serve him now. You've realigned. Let, let's get back into battle right now. That's the first group. There's also another group that's interesting here. It says when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard the Philistines, that's a different group. One group has literally changed armies. The other group has just melted in fear. And I think we find a couple of different types. And I don't want to... I don't want to spiritualize the text too much, but I think there's principles we can learn here. That Sometimes you've got people who've turned toward even a common enemy, and you don't understand anymore what they're thinking, where their minds are at. And then there's another group who literally, they may claim God, but they live such shadow lives spiritualists, it's shadow lives, you know, in, in terms of who they are. And you wonder, man, why aren't they bold with their faith? Why aren't they courageous? Sometimes I think it's just fear. 
Fear of what people might say. Fear of what could happen to them in a workplace. Fear of, of, of the unknown, of not knowing if, if God's going to get them through this. Fear of not really, of feeling overwhelmed. You know, good night. When I read the political banner going on right now, I'm like, come on, Christians. Do you really think that any politician is going to save the day? They are not. Not. Politicians don't save us. Politicians don't direct our steps. There's never been a politician that's, that somehow restored this nation to God. They, they don't do that. It's not their role. They're political leaders. They're not a spiritual leader. They never have been. They never will be. We can't put our trust in them. I mean, if we think that government, if we think that a president, if we think that a senate, we think that a congress is going to stop us, it doesn't matter who gets elected. They can't stop us, folks. They can't stop us. You, a political leader, a president, a congress, a senate, they will never stop us. We're the church of God. We're waiting on the gates of hell to come against us. And we know that they can't prevail. We're not afraid of this election. Bring it. Bring your best. Not the first time we've been in our opposition. We had Nero. Remember that guy? He was chopping our heads off. We think we can't stand up because we don't get the politician we want. Are we that weak? Are we that? Have we become, have we become that soft as believers that we're threatened by a leader of a government? I mean, come on. Laugh this stuff off. Laugh this off. Yeah, sure, they're going to promote agendas I don't like. You think that's the first time that's happened? Don't you remember that guy that used to take our fellow believers and put them up on poles? Watch them burn just so he could light his garden to walk around? Yeah, remember that guy? This is not our first rodeo. Not our first fight. And we're not intimidated. What you find here in Israel are people are so intimidated by an opposing force that they retreat. If you don't get the, the political leader... First of all, if you think your political leader is going to make your Christian life easier, you're, you're living in, a, in a, a delusion. That is not his point, not his purpose, not her point, not her purpose. That's between you and a living God. And if you think that a political leader can stop you, then you're, you become no different than the Israelites who are in their little hiding holes. And I'm hoping maybe, maybe one of the best things that can happen to us, I don't want this. I would love to have a good godly man or a good godly woman leading our nation. Of course I would, I would prefer that. No doubt. No doubt that's what I want. But I'm not threatened if I don't get it. I can sure as I can tell you this, I'm not going to go hide from it. I'm not going to retreat from it. I'm not going to go duck like these guys did in a hole in the ground. And if nothing else, what brings these guys out? Tell me what brings them out of the crags. What gets someone to leave an opposing army? An opposing army that they're serving. What gets them to leave and join back with the army of God? What gets those cowering in fear? willing to come out of the crags. Let's talk about it. What is it? Hope. Hope? What else is it? Taste of victory. Yeah. Taste of victory. Boil it down a little bit further. Because you're right on. They, it is hope. They see the men melting away. It is taste of victory. Go a little further back in the story. What is it? In order to get hope, in order to get a taste of victory, there's something that has to precede that. What word is it? Trust? For me, it's a word perhaps. It's one man saying, maybe. One man saying, I won't. I look at Hebrews and says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That is not our soul. That is not who we are. We are not given a spirit of timidity. We know that from Timothy. Remember that text? One of power, one of love, one of sound mind. We are not, we have never been a people 
but it's just weak sauce. I, mean, I look, I get fired up again, I gotta watch this. I look at the Apostle Paul. I mean, when, when he first becomes a believer, he's blinded for three days, and I says, You're gonna suffer a lot of tough times. You know that, Paul? Does Paul just quit? Nope. He goes and preaches in, in Jerusalem. You know what? They put a hit squad out in Jerusalem and try to kill him. So he moves on to Damascus. You know what happens to Damascus? They put a hit squad on him and they try to kill him. Then he leaves there and he goes to Antioch. They threaten to kill him. He goes to Iconium. They threaten to kill him. He shows up in Lystra. Do you know what happens in Lystra? In the book of Acts? In in Lystra. The guys from Iconium and the guys from Antioch walk 120 miles one way just to kill Paul. Just to kill him. They stone him with rocks. He gets up the next day, still alive, leads Timothy to join him on a journey, walks 50 miles through the mountains to Derby, and then you know what he does? I'd have got chiropractors if I would have done. I'd have sought some time like in a spa trying to heal up. No. Paul gets up the next day, walks 50 miles back, preaches in Lystra, then he goes and preaches in Iconium, then he goes and preaches in Antioch. We are not cut from a group of people who give up. Especially not because of weak sauce, you know, president, a weak sauce politician, you know, we're not intimidated by those folks. And when you get other believers intimidated by this, get in their grill. This is not who we are. We are not people of fear. Not a people of fear. That's not who we are. Matthew wasn't fearful when they killed an Ethiopian. Luke wasn't fearful when they drove him to the streets of Alexandria. James James wasn't fearful when they threw him from the temple and they beat a bludgeon in his head till his brains fell out. Thomas wasn't fearful when he chose to go to India and they stabbed him with a spear. Bartholomew, every time you see him, your brother, every time you see Bartholomew, do you know what he's always holding in his hand? Every picture in church history, do you know what Bartholomew holds? A knife. Do you know why he holds a knife in every single picture in church history? Because they filleted him alive. That's why he always holds a knife. We're not of a people who quit. We're not of a people who give up. And that's why Paul can say, I fought the good fight. I kept the faith. I finished the race. I think Paul would look at us and all the Christian clamoring over this and he'd go, are you kidding me? Let me take you back a couple thousand years to see what we dealt with. Shipwreck three times, beat with lashes, beat with rods, endangered my countrymen, endangered in the sea, endangered, you know, in the wilderness. And we're worried about a politician. If we get that word, we're going to be so close to being exactly what these people are. Living in hide holes, afraid for our lives. And I'm telling you, that's not our DNA as believers. It's not who we are. It's not who I am. It's not who you are. We're not of those, as Hebrews says, we're not of those who shrink back or destroy. We're the army of God, the people of God. And we are filled with the power of God and the Holy Spirit. And I think it'd be a whole lot better if we started living lives that held the word perhaps. What are they going to do? Kill you? Seriously. What happens then? You get to go to be a father. And if they don't kill you, what are they going to do? Take away your birthday and Christmas? Or what can they do to you? It's exactly what the scripture is saying. What? Who shall I fear? What can man do to me? No matter what his or her political party is. Who shall I fear? If God is with me, how's that finish? Who can be against me? What can man do to me? And my challenge, when we look at this text, is let's live lives more like Jonathan, less like Saul. All right, I got preaching, man. I'm sorry. This stuff, I get wound up and excited about it.
We didn't even get to 15, which has got a bombshell. Um, the bombshell in 15 is, I'm just going to unpack it generally because it's pretty powerful and I wish I would have taught on it. I could have got wound up about it too. Uh, I don't get wound up like this very often. Every so often, I'm telling you. Do I get wound up like this every time? I love this text. Just wait till we talk about David and Goliath. I'm going to lose my ever-loving mind. Um, one thing that happens here is they rout the Philistines, and I'm going to try to do this in about, about a minute and a half. And God sends them to destroy the Amalekites. Amalekites are a... They come from the line of Esau. They're a wretched people who did nothing but hurt the Israelites. Uh, they, they, they caused nothing but destruction and hardship. And, and God says to wipe them out. And, uh, and in fact... You know, it says, he says, I, I want you, in verse 2, I want you to get the context. Verse 2 of chapter 15, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. What the Amalekites did is that anybody who was old or injured or young and couldn't keep up, they would come up behind them and they would kill them. And they just slaughtered them left and right. I mean, and these raiding parties, they'd come in and come out. You had all these people on this journey to the promised land, and God never forgot what the Amalekites did to him. Never forgot what the Amalekites did to his people. And, and this is the day where God's going to say, get them out. Wipe every one of them out. Now that we look at that like genocide and all that kind of stuff, you've got to keep in mind right now, there are no prison systems. There's nowhere to put anyone. This is, and, and what they've done is slaughter, 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 slaughter. Grandmothers wounded, handicapped, they've just been a wretched, wretched people. And God says, we're going to kill every one of them for what they did when they did this. It says, now go to the Amalekites and destroy everything that belongs to them. Don't spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, donkeys, everything. I can't get away from the fact that that, that makes my stomach turn and sick. And I, I want to hear God help me understand it all. Um, but I know God's saying, I can't have any of this here. Because once it gets a foothold, it will never leave. The other thing to keep in mind, if you remember we talked about in Judges, the intermarrying part can't happen. God has to protect the promise of Abraham, which is the bloodline of Jesus, which goes all the way. And these people are going to do nothing. All they've ever done is kill the Israelites. It's all they've ever done. They've been an enemy and a thorn on their side. Thorn on their side. And, and God knows, if I leave any of them alive, all they're going to do is keep breeding, They'll carry the vengeance, they'll carry the wrath, and they'll come back and do it again. If I let him alive. Now the reason why, why did God have him kill the donkeys and the sheep and everything? I think if this can make sense to you, God did not want them to profit from war. He's like, we're not doing this so we can get rich. It would have made sense, God said, you know, in our world, kill them and take the oil. You know, that, that, that's the refrain we get. We understand that. Regardless of our political bent, we've heard it. Oh, we did that for the oil. God did not want them going against the Malachites and doing this absolute annihilation just so they could fill their pockets with money. Um, so Saul, end of the story, ends up this. Um, early morning, uh, Saul says that he does it. I went, I fought him. Um, but Saul, verse 9, spared. Uh, but, but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle and the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. Uh, and then over here in verse 13, uh, says, Saul said, the Lord bless you to Samuel. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. He has not. And Samuel said, well, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Again, this is the moment 
where God says, I'm completely done with you. Because God demands obedience over sacrifice. Obedience is more important than sacrifice. That we can say, well, God, I, I, I serve in church. God, I tithe. God's here at all, here at all things I do. And God's like, this is what I told you to do. As my child, this is what I commanded. Don't tell about all the things you, 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 you do. I want to talk about the fact that of what you didn't do. And what I asked you to pull off, what I asked you to accomplish. And we get into this. Saul does nothing to make excuses for his sin for the rest of that chapter. Would encourage you uh, to read it. Uh, it really is pretty powerful. Um, but the whole point being is, is Saul loses the kingdom because of his inability to obey. Um, you can look at it and say, wow, God was commander-in-chief. And there's no room to be the superior leader underneath him and not follow authority and not follow command. And he didn't do it. And it, it wipes out his kingdom. So, all right, we're done. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.